The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Jill Lindsay Harrison, Associate Professor of Geography at the University of Colorado at Boulder. Her research focuses on environmental justice, environmental politics, agriculture, and food systems. She helps identify the cultural relations and political economic processes that disproportionately place members of racially marginalized indigenous and working class communities in dangerous spaces and precarious conditions that contribute to inequalities in life, opportunity, illness, and death. Dr. Harrison is most recently the author of a book titled From the Inside Out, The Fight for Environmental Justice Within Government Agencies, But in honor of the 60th anniversary of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, we're going to turn our attention to Dr. Harrison's earlier work, a book titled Pesticide Drift and the Pursuit of Environmental Justice. It was published in 2011 by the MIT Press, and it is just as relevant today, if not more so. The book has won awards from the Rural Sociological Society and the Association of Humanist Sociology. Welcome, Dr. Harrison. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate your deep dive into pesticide drift. I should mention that you also serve on the National Environmental Justice Advisory Council of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. What I think we should start off with, however, is simply asking, how did you become interested in pesticide drift? I was a graduate student in the early years of my PhD program in environmental studies at University of California, Santa Cruz, and was searching about for a dissertation topic. I knew that I wanted to do research on something relating to environmental politics, where it intersects with social justice issues. And around that time, several large-scale pesticide drift incidents occurred in California. And I knew I wanted to do my work in the context of agriculture and and ideally within California. So pesticide drift is a term that has become used to refer to the airborne movement of pesticides away from where they're applied and into some other social space. And during this time around 2000, 2001, there were a couple of these large-scale events where hundreds of people were sickened by pesticides moving away from where they had been applied and into a neighboring field, into a neighboring residential area, into a neighboring school, and making people very sick. Some of them had to go to the hospital. But part of what was so troubling about these incidents was, you know, in part how badly they were responded to by emergency responders. So the first responders on the scene didn't know what was causing these illnesses, The pesticides, in some cases, don't even have to be reported to public officials, or when they are, they're reported to the county agriculture commissioner, which 
isn't necessarily in perfect coordination or even good communication with emergency responders. So those on the scene didn't know what was causing the sickness or how to treat people accurately. And some of their responses were quite inhumane, I would say, especially one incident in particular in this little town called Early Mart in California's Central Valley. When the emergency responders showed up, they told some people to open up their houses and air them out. They told some people to go into their houses and close all their windows. They rounded up some of the folks who were the most sick into a schoolyard in town and eventually had them take off their clothes and hose them down with fire hoses, which, as it turns out, is a standard decontamination procedure when you suspect that folks have been contaminated but you don't know with what. And as it turns out, what people have been exposed to in early March was a soil fumigant called metam sodium. So it's something that's it's applied in that incident. It was applied through a sprinkler system, so through the irrigation system and irrigation water onto a field as a pre-planting treatment to sterilize the soil for potatoes that would be planted there so that they wouldn't get diseases. So the soil fumigant is designed to go into the soil and then vaporize once it goes into the soil in order to sterilize the soil structure. But in this case, the chemical vaporized, it turned into a gas before it got down into the soil. And so it moved up into the air. And then there was an inversion layer that day. So it's kind of pressure that keeps things from moving up very high. And then there was a breeze. So basically it it kept all the chemical right at about human level and moved it out of the field and into the little town of Early Mart. So they were exposed through inhaling this chemical and the, the decontamination that they experience didn't really help treat their symptoms. Metamsodium, just like many of the other highly toxic and drift-prone pesticides that are used routinely in California agriculture, causes acute illness, so those immediate symptoms of pesticide exposure, including burning eyes, difficulty breathing, nausea, vomiting. If you're exposed to enough of it, it could kill you, so that's a very extreme acute symptom of pesticide exposure or exposure to soil fumigants, especially metamsodium. But they also contribute to a wide range of chronic illnesses, very debilitating ones, including various forms of cancer, birth defects, and others. And so these incidents got my attention. I was struck and troubled and upset by the emergency response and the lack of proper treatment of the individuals who had just been so deeply harmed. But I was also struck by some of the other discourse, some of the other commentary around these events where the folks in the communities who were interviewed by reporters saying, this is a very dramatic incident, but this is something that happens to us on a smaller scale every day. Mm. And I just, I found that upsetting and troubling. And I decided to look more into what is this problem of pesticide drift? How do we explain this in a state like California, which has the biggest pesticide regulatory apparatus in the country and the most vibrant environmental movement in the country, and yet here we have pesticides just moving off site and making people deeply sick. So that's what started it, and that captured my attention, and it helped me through that. It helped me understand ways of thinking and talking about pesticides and pesticide politics in California and 
in a, in a way that's attentive to social justice and with an interest in understanding how pesticide politics are not just technical debates about what are medically accepted safe levels for people to be exposed to, but they're also very much debates about whose lives matter and whose don't. Right. This is just remarkable. Well, I want to bring forth a few statements from your book to help our listeners understand that from the UN's Environment Program, you've got a statistic that between one to five million pesticide poisonings occur every year worldwide. 20,000 of those are fatal. But you point out that this number does not account for the pesticide-related delayed onset diseases, nor that most pesticide exposures, they're not recognized, they're not treated, and they're not reported. And that gets to the problem with a population that has been increasingly frightened to step forward. And that would be our immigrants that we depend so much on in our food system to put food on our table. So you do take a deep dive into California agriculture and pesticide use, but this is just the tip of the iceberg. So the injustice that you mentioned is not just environmental injustice. It also has to do with how we treat the very people that we depend on to put food on our table. And you spend time talking about what's happened with our attitudes towards the immigrant population. And I wonder if you would want to talk a little bit to that topic. Absolutely. So when we talk about the phrase environmental justice, I'm using that in a way that's consistent with folks who identify as part of the environmental justice movement. And this is a a social movement of community-based members and others who support them who have been very much concerned and outraged about the fact that environmental problems in this country are disproportionately borne by communities of color, indigenous communities, working class communities, that the environmental problems that we face today in this world, on the one hand, affect all of us, but they do not affect all of us equally, and that they fall absolutely disproportionately along lines of social status, like the ones that I mentioned. And this pesticide drift is an environmental justice issue like so many others. It disproportionately harms immigrant farm workers in California and elsewhere, both because they are disproportionately exposed to agricultural pesticides by virtue of working in the field and working intimately with pesticides and in spaces that are adjacent to active pesticide applications, but also because they of just living in these spaces and going to school in these spaces and playing in playgrounds in these spaces. So they're disproportionately exposed at work and at home. And at the same time, they're disproportionately vulnerable to the effects of exposure because of a whole host of vulnerabilities that this population experiences. So these are the folks who pick our food. They make it possible for us to have access to relatively affordable fresh fruits and vegetables all year round, and yet they are extremely underpaid. Their work is highly uneven in nature, so their income goes up and down over time. They receive very few non-wage benefits. They experience racism, you know, on the behalf of political officials. 
law enforcement, neighbors, many other people. So they experience a whole host of vulnerabilities. And many farm workers in California, at least half of them, probably many more, work in this country without legal authorization to do so. And it's been that way for many years across the United States. But the point of mentioning it here is that, that those legal status issues end up making it so that farm workers are less likely to be able to feel comfortable informing medical officials that they've been exposed to pesticides. It makes them unlikely to feel comfortable reporting pesticide exposures for fear of losing their jobs for fear of having to interact with law enforcement because either they or someone else in their household lacks legal status and they don't want to put them at risk. So many of the people who I interviewed and spent time with as part of my research for this book described these ways in which these different forms of vulnerability around legal status, racism, this kind of hierarchy of social value, end up rendering so many instances of pesticide exposures and including exposure to pesticide drift, invisible to the rest of us. They're unwilling to be reported, or when they are reported, they're not taken seriously and not investigated fully. Right. Dr. Harrison, let me take one break because we are halfway through, and I want to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Dr. Jill Lindsay Harrison. She is Associate Professor at the University of Colorado at Boulder, and we are talking about her book titled Pesticide Drift and the Pursuit of Environmental Justice. Dr. Harrison, I'm very interested in understanding how we moved to accept these toxins into our lives almost as being inevitable in order to have high yields, in order to have clean fields, in order to have perfect fruits and vegetables, we have no other choice but to rely on these chemical toxins. And I'm wondering if you have any ideas on how we can get out of that cultural narrative and that framing. Yeah, I mean, so the pesticide industry is one of the most powerful and highly concentrated industrial sectors around the world. You know, there are just a handful of transnational corporations that produce and sell almost all of the pesticides that are produced and sold within this country and worldwide. So they have an incredible amount of market power, and they use that power to produce science that makes their products look good, to suppress science that calls their products health and safety implications into question. They use their market power to financially support political leaders who will in turn support their interests by fighting against stronger pesticide regulations. They use their market power to discredit highly credible alternative approaches to producing food, including concepts such as sustainable agriculture and agroecology. There are researchers and practitioners across this country and around the world who have alternative ways of producing food and fiber that are not so dependent on highly toxic chemicals. We know that there are other ways that food and fiber can be produced. So part of the answer to that question is just the incredible amount of power that industry actors use to defend the current highly pesticide-intensive model of industrial agriculture. 
Mm-hmm. You bring forth an ad. This was an ad from DuPont, and you describe the way in which images affect how we think. You've got your clean fields. You've got the male image, the dominant force against nature. Rather than working with nature, it's always controlling nature. And there are often terms that are similar to warfare, you know, fighting against nature, for example. And I think it's important for us to consider how not only the words and the injustices of how these industries have manipulated our regulatory agencies, really the corporate capture of our regulatory agencies. But I think it's important for us to understand how both language and images affect what we consider to be acceptable today. Absolutely. There's a sociologist of food and agriculture, Michael Bell, who I worked with at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, who has this great book called Farming for Us All that I think you and your listeners would be interested in. He looks at agricultural production in Iowa and this very pesticide-intensive industrial model of agriculture, and he asks this question of why are so many farmers so committed to this model of agriculture when it doesn't really serve them very well economically, their incomes are often in the red many years, and when it has so many deleterious impacts on their health and the health of their animals and the health of their environments and those of their neighbors and friends and family in their communities. And one of the things that he finds in the book and shows really nicely is that that image of a clean, weed-free field is so bound up with dominant ideas of what it means to be an upstanding community member, and especially with dominant notions of what it means to be a respectable man. So these kind of hegemonic ideas of masculinity uphold chemical-intensive agricultural production. He showcases in the latter half of the book this group called the Practical Farmers of Iowa that tries to build a different set of relationships and a different set of expectations among farmers about how to be a respectable member of the community, but in ways that support more sustainable forms of farming and more sustainable environmentally, but also socially. So, yeah, I mean, we have these notions and we don't just make them up. I mean, these notions are propagated by very powerful industry actors. They're propagated by commodity organizations. They're propagated by industry organizations that give out awards and honors for producing the most corn or the most soy, but not for having the most ecologically sustainable field. These notions are also supported by the structure of agricultural policies in this country, where billions of dollars of agricultural subsidies are given to farmers for how much of a particular grain they produce, not for how agroecological their farming systems are. And then, of course, these notions of what a good field looks like are also implicitly supported by a pesticide regulatory apparatus that allows the use of so many deeply harmful chemicals. So all of that is to say that these commitments to industrial agriculture that many farmers uphold, they are driven by a lot of different structural factors. There are creative ways that farmers are 
finding ways to be supported economically and socially and in ways that enable them to practice more ecological forms of farming. But a big part of that is going to have to be stronger regulations, stronger restrictions on the use of the most toxic pesticides. The way that I talk about it is that we need a carrot and a stick approach for addressing the problem of pesticide drift. So the carrot would be something like organics or subsidies to help support more sustainable agriculture, so kind of dangling these incentives out there that can really help compel farmers to move in a more sustainable direction. But we also need the stick of stronger restrictions on the use of the most toxic and most drift-prone pesticides so that nobody can use them because they're so harmful to human health. Well, I want to just bring forth another statement that you make here in Chapter 3, which is about the quote-unquote crop protection industry. And just using that term, crop protection, of course, has a much different connotation than if I were to say the pesticide industry. Mm-hmm. And that was by design. But you say that public-private research relationships are increasingly common in an era of declining funds for public education, and private companies now fund upward of 25% of all research conducted in some public university departments. And that right there, I think, needs to be highlighted because unless we are willing to dedicate tax dollars and public funding for public institutions, we will not be able to differentiate between the industry-backed science versus that which comes, say, from the same land-grant institution, but comes from publicly funded dollars. And there's such a trust for university research. But unless people really understand where the funding is coming from and who supports that, we are left more confused. Yep, that's exactly right. I mean, we have public institutions to do the things that the private sector either doesn't do or won't do. And the public institutions that we have in this country, many of them, most of them, all of them, I guess I would argue, are deeply flawed and yet fundamentally crucial. They serve a fundamentally crucial public purpose. So, Part of our task in front of us is to look at something like the public university research apparatus and to ask, how can we strengthen this in ways that will support more environmentally sustainable and socially just ends? And one of the things that has really hit public university research over the past several decades is the erosion of state and federal funding for public education, and that has to be reversed. And that's exactly why, because as funds for public research dwindle, researchers like myself still need to conduct our work. And we would be, many of us, not so much myself, but many of my colleagues are compelled to search for funding from private industry actors. And one of the really crucial, important things that public university researchers can do is to help develop the technologies and the institutions needed to support more sustainable forms of farming, many of which can't be marketed in a really, in the kind of a package of like a highly profitable package of some kind of new pesticide or some other new silver bullet technology. And yet there's all kinds of innovations that we can help to develop and promote and support 
consider essential for fostering sustainable agriculture. So along with my recommendation, and not just recommendation, but my insistence on the need for stronger pesticide regulations, stronger restrictions on the use of pesticides, is also an argument that we need greater funding for sustainable agriculture in the public sector. Right. We just have a few minutes left, and I would be remiss if I did not touch on regulation. You write that you believe that regulatory institutions and agencies could do much more to protect public health. You believe in supporting the precautionary principle, as do I. What would you like to say about regulatory agencies and regulatory neglect? Well, I guess, so I would say two things. One is, in some sense, I recognize that a lot of folks who are listening right now are probably very concerned about pesticides in terms of pesticide effects on their own bodies. I mean, that's what brings a lot of people into this space is concern about the effects of what happens to me when I eat food that has pesticide residues on it. What does that do to my body? What does that do to my children's bodies? And I guess I would just say that our concern about pesticides also needs to be concerned about people who live very different lives from our own. That a lot of the pesticides that are so harmful and perhaps most harmful to human health are pesticides that do not end up as residues on your food, but which are deeply harmful to people who work in agricultural fields and live near agricultural fields. So some of the greatest forms of pesticide exposure that cause the most damage, most of us will never experience those harms. And yet it's incumbent upon us to help fight for restrictions on the use of those chemicals in order to help support our fellow residents who do come into contact with those products. So that's one thing that I would say. You know, another thing I would say is that this is an exciting time that we were in. There's so much promise and potential right now with the executive leadership in the White House right now at the federal level and with so much attention at state levels and at federal levels alike, so much attention to environmental justice. There's the effervescence and energy around making environmental regulation more attentive to questions of social justice and more committed to redressing so many different forms of racial environmental inequality is really incomparable. There's more attention to this now than there's ever been before which is also why it's so important that all of us keep that pressure on our elected officials to make good on the promises that they've been making for the past few years around environmental protections and environmental justice. The pressures working against them are strong. We need to hold our regulatory officials and our legislative officials to the highest possible standards. So I hope that all of you will join me in that and Be active politically, talk with your friends and colleagues about the issues that matter to you, and insist to your local, state, and federal leaders about the need for action on environmental justice, including stronger environmental regulations. That is a great send-off. I need to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in Columbia, Missouri. 
But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Jill Lindsay Harrison, Associate Professor of Geography at the University of Colorado at Boulder. We have been talking about her excellent book titled Pesticide Drift and the Pursuit of Environmental Justice. Thank you so much for your time today. You're very welcome. Thank you for this opportunity. <laughs> 